Time now for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, pleasure as always. How are you? I'm doing great. It's looking like another uh, good year of legal events nonstop. You know, I, I still remember as a, as a young man uh, reading various fiction and watching shows like Star Trek used to present moral dilemmas that would make us question uh, matters that we would seem to think are simple, like, you know, what rights does a human being have versus an animal versus a tree versus a plant? But they would often sort of throw a curveball and they'd say, well, what would happen if you put human genes into an animal? Does that animal now have more rights than it did before or vice versa? What happens if you were to crossbreed, I don't know, a, a human? with some animal genes is that human somehow lesser how would the law deal with that how would we deal with that morally now there are no easy answers to these questions but we are now at the state where it is possible at least we're told to use technology to modify the genetic code of a person so is that person now an intellectual work who owns the rights to that dna is that moral should that be allowed at all China's courts are dealing with the implications of gene-edited babies right now, science fiction being made reality. How is the law dealing with this? Well, uh, in China, kind of uh, opaquely would be the uh, sort of the one-word answer to it. Uh, and there's a uh, decision or a judgment there which just uh, came out a, a few days ago, and it involved the conviction of three Chinese scientists uh, who uh, decided to genetically modify uh, an embryo uh, in an attempt to give the uh, uh, children uh, immunity to HIV. And the background is that apparently the uh, father of the uh, children had HIV. The mothers did not. Uh, there was twins and then one other uh, child who had this uh, procedure performed as an embryo. Now, the particular the controversy uh, includes the type of of gene editing that the scientists performed here. There are some kinds of gene edits, like we hear about them in the context of things like, you know, possible gene therapy, where, you know, they'd be able to remove and uh, fix some disease that somebody has. But those kind of edits are not edits which would be potentially passed along to your children. They would be sort of editing uh, genes in a way that that would not occur. What the scientists did in China is that the kind of uh, modifications they made to the stem cells of this embryo using a technology called CRISPR was controversial because the changes would then be passed on forever by the offspring of the resulting children. Hmm. Now, it seems so far that the three uh, children, the twins and the one other uh, uh, child who were born, was born as a result of all of this, uh, appear to be healthy. There doesn't seem to be a, an immediate problem. Nobody's grown a third arm or uh, any other uh, odd uh, genetic uh, uh, mutation has become apparent. But the concern is that uh, these technologies are new uh, and uncertain. It's unclear whether the edits performed by the scientists edited only the gene which permits the HIV uh, to enter a cell uh, or whether they may have modified other cell or gene in other ways. Uh, and to the extent they may have missed the exact mark, uh, the issue here is that nobody would know, well, what is the implication of that going to be? Yeah. And the implication would be passed on potentially forever uh, through the various uh, uh, children of the children or of the children that resulted from this procedure. Uh, now, the Chinese courts, interestingly, sort of an opaque way of dealing with all of this. Mm. 
Um, they convicted these three people of practicing medicine without a license, which is a bit of an odd one. Hmm. Uh, they sentenced the head scientist to three years in prison. One of the other scientists received a, received a uh, sentence of two years uh, in prison. And the third one uh, apparently got a suspended two-year prison sentence. All of them were also fined. Hmm. Now, it's difficult to know exactly what happened here. These scientists essentially disappeared 13 months ago uh, after they, in Hong Kong, made the announcement that they had uh, engaged in this, uh, uh, done this procedure. Hmm. They just sort of were disappeared, which I suppose uh, uh, feeds into some of the concern about the protests going on in Hong Kong at the moment. Uh, apparently, they went uh, across the border into Shenzhen, unclear whether they went there under their own steam or something else caused them to get there. Mm. Uh, but essentially, they were detained and disappeared uh, for the past 13 months. There was then a trial of some kind of script uh, conducted, but the trial was conducted in secret. So we don't know what went on there. All three of them are reported to have pled guilty. But again, we don't know on what basis that happened. Um, and in any case, uh, off they go, at least two of them, directly to jail, and they're not collecting their $200. So what does Canada do with all of these yeah. possible dystopian uh, possibilities that are now available to us? Uh, and I must say, that's an interesting one, right, the Chinese example, because obviously the scientists, well, they may have had other motivations. Uh, one of the motivations was a genuinely helpful one, to allow these couples to have children, to try to prevent the children from contracting HIV, that sounds all very positive. Uh, the risk is that you might uh, cause some unintended consequence that could have uh, very, very long-term implications for everyone concerned. Yeah. So what do we have in Canada? In Canada, we've got the Assisted Human Reproduction Act. Oh, okay. Uh, so we've thought about these things, and in fact, uh, we've set up uh, a bunch of things which are now prohibited. One of the things which we've prohibited in Canada is exactly what the activity was in China. So in China, we, we wouldn't uh, charge somebody with practicing medicine without a license and send you to jail for three years for that. We would instead charge you with an offense under the Assisted Human Reproduction Act, which makes it an offense to alter the genome of a cell of a human being or in vitro embryo such that the alterations is capable of being transmitted to descendants. That's prohibited. So it's the heritability that is necessary for the offense. Right. Fascinating. Um, other things are permitted. In fact, there is a group of people who are, they describe themselves as sort of uh, DNA or genetic hackers mm -hmm. who will do things like try to edit their own genes to do things. There's one fellow who tried to give himself larger muscles by editing his own DNA. And I guess as long as you're doing it in a way that you're not going to pass it on and you want to inject yourself with some unknown uh, uh, gene edit, uh, mm -hmm. I guess that's your prerogative. Other things, and I should say in Canada, that would be punishable by up to five years in prison. So not that far off of what the uh, the Chinese result was. Other things we've chosen to prohibit here uh, along the uh, you know sort of Star Trek and other uh, sort of dystopian yeah, future yeah. possibilities. We've prohibited things like yeah, it is a, an offense uh, to implant an embryo of a non-human into a human or vice versa. You can't do either of those things. This one's interesting. D, I think this may have been a Star Trek episode. I'm not sure. <laughs> Uh, it's also an offense to maintain an embryo outside the body of a female person after the 14th day of its development following fertilization. Now, uh, so there's an exception if the um, development was suspended. I guess that's a frozen embryo exception. But when you read that on the face of it, various things would be prohibited there. 
sort of the Star Trek possibility of babies and vials would be, or, you know, jars of some kind, that would be prohibited. I think it was also a feature of the Matrix, wasn't it? I wonder how it deals with premature births. At what point does an embryo become a baby? Anyway. Well, don't we? 14 days of fertilization. Also, interestingly, it's specific to female persons, so it also would appear to be a offense punishable by up to five years in prison to implant if you could somehow manage to have the embryo survive into somebody who was a male person. If you could somehow... Uh, engineer that. That would actually be a crime in Canada. Uh, it's a uh, also an offense uh, to combine humans and animals, so you couldn't create a human-animal hybrid. Well, would that have rights of a human, rights of an animal, accommodation thereof? Who knows? Hard to know, but not allowed. We've also banned human cloning, uh, so that uh, you know intricate plan you might have had to uh, just carry on. <laughs> I would be That's jealous gonna, of my clone. Out. I'd be like, okay, this looks like me, sounds like me, technically is me, but it's not me. Why would I want to give everything over to a, to an imposter? <laughs> it might have the same position about you. It's uh, all it. It probably would. It's the all first, his. You know? <laughs> the first thing it would do is try to usurp me. I know yes. that, so I'm not it's gonna going to immediately. It. <laughs> it's going immediately to the bank and making a very large withdrawal, right? That's you just can't what, trust this guy. It's me. It's trust me. me. Don't, don't believe anything he has to say, right? So, essentially, we've tried to clamp down on all these yeah. things and, uh, you know, wiping out all manner of possible, uh, you know, Star Trek uh, dystopian futures. But, of course, it's a big world. Uh, and whatever we might choose to do in Canada with the Assisted Human Reproduction Act is likely not going to get universal traction. So, now that these technologies are available, um, it's simply going to be a matter of time uh, until you see them employed somewhere, uh, Perhaps not in China, uh, or at least if it's occurring in China in the future, you probably don't want to hold a press conference in Hong Kong uh, about the greatest new DNA edit you just managed to perform uh, for somebody. So uh, it's going to be really interesting times in which we live. It is fascinating that we actually need to have an act uh, prohibiting you know, human cloning and implantation of embryos into animals and all kinds of other uh, things. Uh, and also interesting, some of the just sort of value judgments that go into those things, right? The prohibition on the editing uh, DNA in a way that can be passed along to descendants, I think, would be understandable. But you'd have to ask questions about, sort of, well, what's the moral imperative uh, that would mandate the prohibition on embryos remaining outside of the body of a female person, uh, after the 14th day of development. Well, isn't, wouldn't a premature birth at seven months technically be an embryo after the 14th day of development? Would that also not be maintained outside the body? Yeah, well, that's an interesting thing. Like, like that's what yeah. I was thinking when I... Like, we, we, I we've, tried to, we've tried to define these things in different ways. You yeah. have to look up, like, an embryo means a human organism during the first 56 days of development. Okay, there's the answer. So there, there would okay. be the answer to All it. Right. Oh. But, I mean, you'd have to answer other questions. Like, why would you want to prohibit... For example, if there was some technology that allowed people to uh, have a child, uh, but it used some sort of advanced version of uh, an incubator, uh, for example, for a longer period of time, is that inherently wrong? Should we, uh, should we send people to prison for engaging in that behavior? What are the implications of that? Um, so there's some really interesting ethical issues, uh, and uh, unfortunately we don't have a clear answer to how China dealt with them because they just conducted a secret trial and sent these people off to uh, jail after disappearing them for 13 months, uh, at least happily in Canada, if there's some application of the Assisted Human Reproduction Act, at least we'd have a better and clearer idea of what in fact went on and why we 
do what we do. All right. Time for a quick break. Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan continues after this. Somebody texted in saying, just think, Adam, if you were cloned, you'd be just like Austin Powers. He was cloned in the second movie and had a great time. Well, there we go. That's all the convincing I need. <laughs> um, <laughs> Legally Speaking continues on CFAX. Well, I didn't even know before we had this conversation, Michael Mulligan, that Canada had an act called the Assisted Human Reproduction Act that prohibited all of these activities. So it's a useful conversation. You know, we lawyers have to keep ourselves busy. If we have enough of these acts, right, it's a virtually a nonstop impossibility to get through life without uh, needing to consult one of us, right? And really, to know us is to love us. Maybe that brings us back to the desirability of cloning. <laughs> there we go. But then again, you know, who get, who gets to bill for that time? You are the clone, or do you get a part of what your clone does? Do you have a right to, to sort of recoup those? Who knows? Well, it's nothing uh, endless litigation wouldn't solve. Um, speaking of litigation, there is a civil action that we are contemplating in our, in our next story, a class action against is this Shaw allegedly discriminating. Well, what's going on here? Indeed. This is, a, I think, a, a very interesting one, both from a legal perspective and, and what is alleged. So what is alleged, and none of this has been proven at this point, it's a proposed class action alleging that Shaw participated in a, quote, unlawful pricing scheme, close quote, uh, where it is alleged that they routinely discriminated against people in terms of offering discounts, claiming that uh, Shaw uh, offered discounts routinely to anyone who communicated with them in Mandarin or Chinese or Cantonese, uh, but not people who communicated with them in other languages. Hmm. So that's an interesting uh, claim. Shaw denies that allegation, but the decision which just came out was uh, an interesting one from the perspective of uh, how this is proceeding, uh, because the proposal is this proceed as a class action, not surprisingly, because no one is going to go to court and litigate whether they failed to get the, uh, were discriminated against and didn't get their discount on their Shaw plan, that makes no sense whatsoever on an individual basis. But if that was made out collectively, that could be a fair bit of money. Now, many of these class action cases um, are fought over the issue of certification. Should a judge approve the thing to go ahead as a class action as opposed to just in this case, Martin Halliday hmm. uh, claiming that, hey, I paid too much on my Shaw bill. And that's where a lot of the litigation occurs. The companies usually that are being sued fiercely defend these things, trying to prevent them from get getting certified. And here the argument was whether this thing should be certified or whether as Shaw wanted, they wanted to have a, a summary trial to determine whether this person, Martin, uh, had a valid claim because they would rather deal with that rather than have the thing certified when then there could be some additional pressure to settle the thing. Hmm. And Shaw's arguments were things including, um, hey, this is uh, damaging to our reputation. We should be able to deal with this uh, in a summary, fast way. We don't think that this particular person has any claim against us. Uh, their claim, Their response was that he had voluntarily entered into a contract with his eyes open, presumably to renew his Shaw cable or some such thing, right? Uh -huh. um, and so the judge was um, struggling with the issue of, does the judge allow Shaw to have the trial before the issue of should the thing be turned into a class action? Um, and there were a number of objections to that, including things like, well, if you have a trial where there isn't a class action, you can get costs awarded against you if you don't succeed. Or... You might have a circumstance where there's a defense against 
that guy or the person, right? But maybe it would have a different analysis if you were looking at the class more broadly. Um, and in any case, here, the, uh, oh, and then sorry, other concerns were things like, well, now what happens? So if the Shaw loses the summary trial, is Shaw then going to try to appeal that thing all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada, thereby delaying the certification issue? Is this just some tactic to uh, cause delay and put off the potential claim? Here, the judge concluded that wasn't so. Uh, the judge found that Shaw had waived uh, their right to ask for costs if they didn't succeed. Uh, and uh, in terms of uh, the sort of judicial efficiency, the judge concluded that it made more sense to allow this summary trial about whether the individual person um, had a claim because it would also then, uh, if that was unsuccessful, shorten one of the potential arguments on the certification hearing. So what's going to happen? Well, I guess we'll wait and see. Uh, presumably, they, there will be a summary trial, which means generally a trial based on you know affidavit evidence rather than a long thing where all the evidence is uh, oral. Hmm. There'll be a determination as to whether Martin's got a good claim against Shaw uh, based on uh, the way his uh, cable bill was uh, determined. Uh, and if uh, Martin is successful, uh, then presumably the next stage will be a class action certification hearing. So you may or may not sometimes in the next decade wind up with some rebate from Shaw, if this thing succeeds, and if you didn't communicate with them in Mandarin or Cantonese. So, interesting. There it is. Interesting. Shaw. Um, we have another story that involves uh, class actions, do we not? We do. And this is another uh, local one and a decision which also just came out. And it deals with that issue that I, we just touched on that issue of certification and how that decision should be made. And this is a, a local case involving the University of Victoria and in excluded employees there, people who would not be union members who worked for the University of Victoria. And the background of it is that back in 2012, the then Minister of Finance made a direction to the university to freeze the pay of all excluded employees. The university got this email from the Minister of Finance uh, directing them under the Public Sector Employers Act mm -hmm. to freeze the pay of all of the employees. And the university treated that as legally valid and did exactly that, froze everyone's pay for several years. And so uh, one of the uh, employees from the University of Victoria brought a proposed class action arguing a number of things, including that that was a breach of contract, that they weren't allowed to make that change, that they had a contract with the excluded employees, and arguing that uh, the requirements under the uh, that particular act weren't complied with such that the minister didn't have the authority to just direct the university to freeze everyone's pay in the way they did it. Now, that proceeded, or that started with one of those applications for certification. That's where the uh, lawyers for the, the plaintiff, representative plaintiff, would go before a judge to argue that, hey, this should go as a class action, not just one by one, which in many cases would be untenable. And there are five things that a judge would need to be satisfied of in order to certify something. There has to be a cause of action, there have to be at least two people, there have to be common issues, it has to be the preferable procedure, right? Um, and uh, and that the representative plaintiff is an appropriate person. So I was going to say that was four. Yeah, that was four. Like, I mean, okay, just yeah. one. Okay. Appropriate person. Okay. <laughs> Number five. Okay. So uh, the uh, the person was unsuccessful at uh, the initial application, 
And the decision which just came out on December 27th was an appeal to the Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal found that the trial judge had made an error in how they analyzed the certification application uh, and has decided that this should proceed uh, as a class action. The Court of Appeal found that the uh, original judge uh, mischaracterized or misunderstood what the proposed nature of the claim was. The judge seemed to think, in part, for example, this was a claim for wrongful dismissal and that it would be too complicated because you'd have to figure out everyone and how they individually oh, yeah. were affected. Yeah. Anyways, the Court of Appeal found that, no, no, uh, that's not really what's being claimed here, uh, and that, well, there would have to be some computation done if they are successful to figure out, you know, what would, you know, Susan's salary have been, and what about Bob's, because there's sort of a formula in there for a, you know, 2% or 3% raise, whatever it might be. But that that wasn't completely unworkable, and the university was obviously capable of making those calculations each and every year when they weren't trying to freeze everyone's salary. So the Court of Appeal found that the uh, uh, class proceeding was an appropriate uh, way to deal with it, recognizing things like there are common issues, and it would be essentially impractical for everyone in this position to go and hire a lawyer and sue their employer, particularly for people who are continuing to work there. Um, that's not going to be a popular move when you've hired a, sub hired a lawyer and sued the person you're working for. So uh, bearing in mind all of those things, uh, the uh, Court of Appeal uh, has ordered that to be certified. And so there will be a, uh, now that there's a certification, there will then be ultimately a trial, unless the thing's settled, uh, and uh, the uh, excluded employees may wind up with some back pay. And also importantly for a number of them, it has an impact on their pension, of course, yes. uh, because if you've uh, reduced somebody's pay for several years and you've retired, uh, that could have a lifetime effect for you. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers every Thursday during the second half of our second hour, Legally Speaking, here on CFAX 1070. Pleasure as always. Thanks for coming in. Thank you.